This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the cttechjunkie.com podcast. We haven't done one of these in a while, but I'm really excited uh, today because... We are doing one, number one, but number two, we've got a great guest who uh, can kind of talk about something that we almost take for granted in this day and age, and that are uh, that is flash memory. You have, obviously, your compact flash cards. I've got a, a bucket full of uh, USB memory sticks that I that I use uh, just to, to toss data around when I have to get it to somebody else, and you know, these things are pretty amazing. There's no moving parts. There's, there's nothing in them that... Uh, that can break sometimes. So you get almost a false sense of, of security that these things might be better than those old floppy disks we used to use. And joining me is uh, Chris Bross from Drive Savers. Hi, Chris. Hello, Juan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And uh, Drive Savers, we'll let Chris kind of talk about what they do, but they are one of the leading data recovery firms in the nation. And they've spent a lot of time recovering data from the spinning magnetic disks that we're very familiar with. Um, but they're also getting now into flash memory. He's going to talk a little bit about uh, how these things work and uh, maybe how not to always rely on them to be completely reliable because they wear out. He's going to talk a lot about that as well. But maybe we should start, Chris, just talk a little bit about drive savers and what you all do. Well, thanks, Son. Now, let's not scare everybody about uh, <laughs> NAND flash at this point. We'll talk sure. about you know uh, the, the pros and the cons of a great technology that's part of everyone's lives right now. Uh, but yeah, Drive Savers, uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Drive Savers is a, a high security, a professional data recovery laboratory that uh, has been in business since 1985. You know, wow. We started yeah, the data recovery industry uh, back before people were even asking for it. Uh, our principles came from a hard drive manufacturer that went out of business and uh, those people ended up needing drive repair and eventually data recovery. And the industry was actually born at that time. Uh, this was pre-internet, per se, pre-Google. Uh, you used the yellow pages, that big fat book with phone <laughs> numbers in it to find us. The thing or, I throw in the recycle uh, bin every week. <laughs> sure. Or your yeah. BBS, maybe. Yeah. You know, if you're right. a BBS. Um, so we started doing data recovery on hard disks, big fat five and a quarter inch, 20 megabyte, 20 megabyte hard drives. And today we're doing four terabyte hard drives and flash memory sticks and phones and everything imaginable because data now lives on all these different types of devices, magnetic, optical, solid state. Uh, and we serve the world. Um, people from all over the, the globe lose data in unfortunate ways, and we are called on 24 by 7 to help them recover that information. And you also do a lot of recovery for law enforcement now also, right? Because so many people use storage devices, whether they know it or not, in the course of their day. And, and, and can you talk a little bit about some of the work you do there? Sure. Uh, yeah, today evidence, which used to be on paper and fingerprints and all that kind of stuff in the law enforcement, legal, and what we call forensic communities, is now digital. Uh, in fact, we have a division within Drive Savers, which is our forensic and e-discovery uh, division that does exclusively that supports uh, the legal industry and the law enforcement industry in the recovery of data 
that need to be authenticated as evidence to be used in court. Uh, and that's different than just plain old data recovery, where you might want the pictures of your child being born uh, or the Word documents you're working on or that PowerPoint you got to get done. In a forensic recovery supporting law enforcement, we need to authenticate everything that that user did with that storage device so that the device tells a story, basically. Uh, and then we extract that story and that information and produce it so that it is viable and repeatable in a court of law. And it's becoming more and more relevant uh, today. In fact, you can read in the news every week about something that's gone on, including, uh, of course, uh, the Newtown uh, uh, massacre where multiple devices you know, uh, were destroyed in that particular case. Uh, that needed to be recovered that is still in limbo, uh, according to the federal authorities, as to the recoverability of those devices. But that's an excellent case where that information needs to be provided forensically as evidence uh, so that it can be supported in, in the court of law. So a lot going on in that particular field right now, and we're engaged uh, all kinds of different ways uh, to recover data forensically. And you're not uh, involved with the Newtown case in this instance, but you have done similar cases, right? That's correct. We are not involved in that case. I believe that's only in the hands of the federal authorities. Uh, but we did have a very recent case, uh, which is a perfect example uh, of a, a particular gentleman who had some apparently uh, incriminating evidence on an iPhone mm. that he didn't want anyone to find. So he smashed the phone, uh, thinking that physically destroying it would be a good way to get rid of the information. And in some cases it is. And then he submerged it by tossing it into a body of water and allowing it to, to sit underwater until it was uh, extracted by the authorities. Now, in most cases, people would believe that that data is gone, and he sure wishes it was. Uh, unfortunately for him, it was perfectly recovered uh, in our laboratory, and a forensic image was extracted. Uh, and that is now a case in progress and an exact example of uh, no matter how hard you try to destroy data, in some cases, it's very persistent. We'll have to talk a little bit more about that when we get further into flash memory here, because that sounds very interesting. So why don't we start with a, kind of a, a layman's explanation of how this stuff works, because for most of us, we take the, one of these little flash disks and stick it in a camera or into a phone or whatever. Uh, it doesn't make any noise. It might heat up a little bit, and they are storing you know, gigabytes of data on these little tiny cards. So how, how does it work? Is it, is it magic, or is there some, some actual um, something actually happening inside of it? It's all magic, no science at all. <laughs> and in fact, when we got we've got terabytes now. Uh, we've right. actually uh, got terabytes now on, on SSDs coming out. But uh, in general terms, we'll do a, a quick comparison of magnetic storage, which has been around for 55 years or more, which is the idea of uh, magnetically encoding the surface of a platter, typically, inside of a, a disk that's rotating in order to store the data. These are disk drives that everybody's known for the last 50-some years. So that's magnetic storage. Well, compared to what we're talking about today, which is solid state storage, which means uh, data stored logically on cells in semiconductor chips. Uh, basically, what you've seen in lots of different chips on little circuit boards, well, a solid state drive is just comprised of NAND flash, which is the type of media used. It's called non-volatile memory. By non-volatile, it means it doesn't lose its information. Well, at least not immediately. Volatile memory is what you think of of RAM in your computer, uh, the processing power of your computer, where NAND flash used in all of these devices is persistent non-volatile memory, where data is stored at a cellular level by programming 
electrons to move across what's called a floating gate and either set a bit as a zero or a one. It is not magnetic at all. It is electrically charged media. And these little cells hold electrons on one side or the other of a floating gate. And that counts as a one or a zero. So and in this card here, so this thing's, this card's, by the way, 13 years old now. Um, inside this card, let's say I wrote something to this card 10 years ago. That electron that, that got pushed into that little cell inside the chip has just been sitting in there for a decade? Is that accurate? Well, you hope. You hope. That hope. It's yeah, right. Um, and yeah. It's, it's a small number of electrons that actually needs to pass over this gate. And depending on what type of NAND flash is being used, and there are three or four different grades of flash in the market right now, kind of determines the resiliency and the endurance and the retention, which is a little bit what you're asking about, mm -hmm. how long this stuff lasts sitting on the shelf. And yeah, basically the cell needs to keep the electrons on one side of the gate. And as they start to leak across the gate or bleed out of the cell, uh, the cell can eventually lose its bits and then that data is lost. And I guess that is more likely to happen the more you use the card, right? They tend to wear out over time? Well, that's definitely one of the variables used, and that's in, in technical terms called the, the program erase cycles, the PE cycles. In layman's terms, we call it how many times can you write to the disk or the flash. Uh, and they're rated, again, those different types of flash for a different number of writes before they begin to wear out and no longer be able to write. Uh, the highest rate of NAND flash, which is not seen in many places except in the, in the enterprise devices, is called SLC or single layer. Uh, that is very resilient and has very high endurance. It can be written to over 100,000 times per cell. Uh, but what's being used primarily today is what's called MLC, or multi-bit flash. And it has a write endurance of about 3,000 writes per cell. Uh, and now TLC, which is three-bit flash, which is becoming more popular in a lot of consumer devices, USB sticks, camera cards, and now in real solid-state drives, has a very low ceiling uh, of about 1,000 to 1,500 writes per cell. And, and this whole metric, this whole variable, is what has people concerned a little bit in the industry about these numbers sound very low it does as sound to low. how yeah. durable or how, you know, how many times I can write to this device. And, but there's a lot of things to take into account. Um, the devices actually have the ability to spread data over all of their cells through a process called wear leveling, which allows a device to actually last much longer than the user would initially think as far as the number of times or years or, or days it can be written to. So even though people are very conscious of these, these right ceilings, as we call them, uh, most of these devices use a controller to manage how that data is spread out to provide really the ultimate or, or the maximum amount of endurance and reliability of the device over time. So if I have here an eight gigabyte memory stick from, it looks like a Kingston thing here, uh, this wasn't that expensive, so I would imagine this is probably using the, 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 the TLC version you mentioned, which is probably the least expensive route to go. Let's just assume that. Um, it's, if I write maybe 100 megabytes to this thing and then erase it, it's not going to write over what I erased. It'll go to the next unused portion until it goes all the way through. Is that right? So I'm not, I'm not rewriting things until I've filled up or used all of the memory that was available? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. In fact, there's even more complex mechanisms inside of that device deciding how that data gets spread out. Not only does it not write right over the data that was there previously, it's spreading it across all of these different cells 
including some extra memory that's in all of these devices called over-provisioned space. That means if it says it's 8 gigs, it's probably 9 gigs of flash, but you only get to see 8 gigs of it. That's because the system inside there uses that extra space as uh, extra reliability and spares and, and space that it will need that it doesn't want to give you that it's going to use to provide that endurance over time. Um, and that's true in bigger solid-state drives as well. Uh, if you buy a 250-gig SSD today, it has more than 250 gigs of flash in it. It's just that you're only able to see that much because the system knows it needs the spare space for its maintenance and its durability. So let me ask you this. I have, um, I have this drive here. This is one of these uh, solid-state disks, and I, I actually use this for uh, video recording uh, gadget reviews that I do. And um, I'm filling this thing up on a, on a fairly regular basis and then wiping out all the raw footage and starting over again. Uh, how, how do I know when this thing, or any, any flash drive for that matter, how do I know when it is nearing its end of life? Is there a utility that I can run? Is there some way to know when this thing's about to die? Or should, is there a general rule of thumb that you suggest people apply to, to when to replace their flash memory? Sure. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, first of all, manufacturers today, and we're in, well, you held up a solid state drive from uh, Otherworld Computing, uh, a, a great company putting a lot of devices out in the field right now, a lot of solid state drives, and they have some of the best performing uh, devices out there. Uh, most companies right now are releasing a utility, uh, a free tool with the drive that you purchase that is uh, a monitoring tool and a maintenance tool. Uh, and in some cases also the tool that allows you to do firmware updates if you need them in the future. And those are very vendor specific and sometimes family specific per SSD. And those do uh, allow you to learn actually quite a bit uh, about your device. And I encourage anyone with a, a solid state drive in the last year or two to be running the toolbox by the manufacturer. Because uh, it tells you a lot about the device and some more than others. For example, Intel's toolbox is very rich in the information that it shares for you about all these things we're talking about, how many times it's been written to and all that stuff. Um, so that's a great monitoring tool uh, to be aware of. Uh, in addition, the, the kind of lifespan of these devices is just something to take into consideration for general usage. And you know they, they de define them in consumer grade and enterprise grade, just like they do with hard disk drives. And so it really depends on whether or not you're gonna be running an SSD 24 hours a day in a server, or it's gonna sit in your notebook and be powered on you know, eight to 12 hours a day. Different applications, different type of SSD, and different expectancy of how long these things will last. Uh, and that would but, be for like a, a high-end right, high SSD or something, but if I've got, you know, I, I bought this cheapo, uh, I got a lot of flash memory in my office here, it looks like. I've got sure. one of these, you know, these things are amazing by the way, these tiny little micro SD cards. I have no way of knowing, really, on something like this when it's going to die, right? Is there any utilities for that or thing on the manufacturer? Uh, great question. So, yeah, down on the consumer side. Actually, there is some uh, with some of the prosumer-grade camera media. There's some more monitoring stuff that's available. But, uh, yeah, if you're buying your flash stick in the grocery store, the same place <laughs> right. you're buying your milk, yeah. which you can do today, right. like you said earlier, you're likely getting a lower-grade TLC, which doesn't necessarily mean unreliable. In fact, Kingston talks about their TLC-grade consumer flash devices and talks about the, the expectancy of those devices. Uh, in fact, they're, they're a real good company about sharing what they expect in these devices for, for the lifespan, but there's not a lot of either built-in or third-party you know, monitoring tools uh, like with the SSDs. And very kind of interestingly, in the media, in the tech media uh, most recently, 
you're now starting to see some uh, of the reputable sites like Anantech and some of the others do some real endurance testing of different devices because, well, you're asking me about this today because people have these questions. And so we're seeing stuff get tested, not by the manufacturers, but by some third-party, you know, nice verification sources. So t I saw a, a, re a current test on Tweaktown on one of the new Samsung 840 SSDs using TLC. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be interesting to see how these play out in these endurance tests that you can kind of follow real time in the market right now because the market is demanding an answer to this that the manufacturers aren't necessarily giving straightforward. Right. And, and a lot, a lot of them are doing tricks and other things to kind of make it, make, make their products uh, look like they maybe do better than they might otherwise. Let me ask a real world question here. So, you know, I've got a SD card that I put in my, my digital camera and uh, it's amazing. First of all, every photo that my camera takes now is like 30 megabytes. It's just, just ridiculous. But so I'm, I'm constantly, you know, if I'm out, doing a couple of photo shoots, I'm going to be burning through a bunch of these cards. How often should I replace the cards? Because it doesn't, it, they, they don't tell you when they're failing, right? The card just stops working. Is that typically the experience if something goes awry? Yeah. Um, to the second part of your question, uh, yes, failures are typically quite, quite binary. They're either working really well or not working at all. Okay? That's kind of scary, uh, huh? It is. It's a little different than hard disks that often have kind of a progressive failure mm. mode. Uh, but you can experience problems, for example, with a, a flash card and a camera where you can read some images but can't read others. That's the media beginning to degrade. But usually you see it all or you see nothing and you can't even you know, see the capacity of the device. So unfortunately, those failures are, are, are sometimes just quite sudden. Uh, and it can be for a variety of reasons. It, it can be that the flash itself actually had a, a failure in, in the cells or in the, uh, in the chip. Uh, and in many cases, the interface itself becomes damaged and it's just totally unreadable. Um, but the good news is, is that typically the data is still there uh, on the card. And although it's not accessible by you in your camera or in a flashcard reader, it is accessible in a laboratory like ours because we kind of get inside of the flash to find out what's wrong with it. Um, but to the consumer who's using the device, um, the first recommendation is, uh, never have only one copy of any important data on any type of media. Right. Some common right? sense, I mean, that's, right? Mm -hmm. There's the rule. And that doesn't mean if it, it doesn't matter if it's your, your new high-grade you know, uh, uh, SD card that you put in or if it's sitting on a hard disk or it's sitting on a RAID server with redundancy. I don't care what it's on. You need multiple copies of it. So uh, a very good rule of thumb is that depending on, on – your volume of available, you know, in your inventory of, of flashcards, uh, we actually suggest not erasing them uh, if you want to maintain that first original copy as your backup once you've transferred that data over to your computer and ideally transferred it somewhere again. But eventually, you know, we understand that you're likely going to want to cycle and, and reuse that, you know, media because it can successfully be used many times. The, the real bummer is, is that one of the times you're going to use it, it's just going to die. Right. And so if you have this cycle in place where you are constantly backing it up first to your local disk, then backing it up to your server or to your cloud, and then only recycling or reusing that card when you need to, the worst you're going to be bitten is just one cycle deep on a data loss. And ideally, you know, it's hard to keep this backup strategy in play. That's the reason that we're in business. But if people followed a simple, you know, one, two, three step strategy with moving data right, off of their flash <laughs> memory. Right, they'd have it somewhere. 
right? They would need us, you know, but we're open 24 hours a day. <laughs> so full service busy, when, so. when needed, right? Um, so, and I, and I guess, you know, maybe that would also, you know, a lot of the newer digital cameras now have two memory card slots and allow you to, to, to basically write to two cards at the same time. So that might be something to do as well. Um, would you suggest that if I'm a professional photographer and out in the field every every day or two, I should probably maybe get rid of these cards every month or two? Or what? what's your, you know, is there a, is there a, a, a kind of a, hard and fast rule that someone who's who's doing something for a living um, should think about? Because I know in the days of television production, we mentioned before we started that you were in, in video production in college. You know, I remember uh, even at my college television station, we would we would toss out the batteries and the microphones every after every broadcast just because even though that battery still had capacity, they didn't want to risk having the battery fail in the middle of a broadcast. So is that a similar thing that should should a photographer be tossing their cards out? So great, great question. Um, there's not a hard and fast schedule to that, but it's an excellent question. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'd almost look to, to maybe, uh, some of the organizations like the, the professional photography, uh, uh, association for some guidance on that. Cause we don't have any guidance on that specifically because it, it varies, you know, based on technology, manufacturer type of media, just like it did with CD ROMs. Remember how everyone thought they'd last a hundred years and right. depending on who you're using, they last a very short time to a very long time. So there's no general rule except that the, the recommendation is that, again, that the photographer have some sort of a, a field process where they have a, a mobile drive with them attached to a laptop or whatever it is so that they're not waiting to get back to the studio to make a copy of those images. In fact, I talk to photographers all the time who have some sort of field backup unit, either a little RAID or a little external or something like that, that you know they're backing up to. Um, because you just never know when it's gonna when it's gonna when it's bite gonna you. Crap out on you. So let's move on to cell phones. So we're all walking around with these smartphones now, and uh, these also have flash memory on board. And I would I would imagine that you know the backup process should be the same here. Is there any anything specifically maybe anything different about about using a cell phone that that would maybe differ from just having a memory card? Do do, do they tend to use better components in let's say an Apple iPhone as opposed to you know, a memory card I might buy off the street. Or, you know, what what kind of things should we be worried about, thinking about in in the mobile phone world? Sure. Um, well, in the mobile phone world, this is a big thing for us today. We are being engaged uh, nonstop to recover data from iOS devices and from Android devices primarily. Uh, why? Because there's more than a billion of them on the planet at this point, I think, and uh, they're selling like crazy, and everyone's got flash storage in their phone. Uh, most people don't have any consideration for the type of storage in their phone. And in fact, for many people, this is the first real data storage device they've ever owned. Uh, some people who never had a computer or anything just have a phone now. Right. And they really have no clue. Um, and that's okay uh, because it's magic to them that they can make videos of the kid playing soccer and take all these pictures and download all these apps. And magically, it just sits in the phone. Um, well, of course, it's sitting on MLC-grade flash for the most part. Uh, and Apple, as you, um, you know, brought up, Apple's done an incredible job. Uh, 2007, I think, was when the iPhone yeah. first came out, mm -hmm. of with each generation of phone building a more resilient, more secure, more stable platform uh, from encryption um, technology, from uh, special technology they use in Flash when they bought the company's Anabit, to really making a resilient storage device so that you don't have to worry about losing data from them too often. Um, however, 
um, they do have mechanisms in place for backup because they know that things happen, right? Syncing via cable was always there to iTunes when you first got it. Now syncing over the cloud, Android devices can sync to the G drive because it's a good idea to get the data off of this device because what's really going to happen is the phone is unlikely to wear out to have any of those issues we talked about earlier with the flash. What's going to happen is it's going to get smashed, it's going to get dropped, it's going to get lost, it's going to get stolen, or something's going to happen to the device before you have a chance to make copies of the data and the device is just going to be gone. And so the resiliency of the devices are quite good from the data storage level. Um, customers make human errors that cause data loss, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, accidental restores uh, of a, a, an older version or a new version over a phone and where they accidentally erase the phone in the process or they delete pictures, which happens quite commonly. Sure. Um, they lose contacts, you know, all the same things we would think of. And the reason they're asking us to do data recovery on phones primarily uh, is because they have become physically damaged, and this is statistically accurate. Secondarily, because they've been exposed to liquid or environmental issues. Uh, they were in the hurricane in Sandy, they went into a lake, whatever the case may have been, and then user-related problems. So that's why they're coming to us for data recovery. Uh, the number one thing they want to recover is photos and videos, as you would probably guess. Right. Uh, second is either contacts uh, or notes. Uh, notes are asked for quite often as well. Uh, and messages depending on how they're stored. So there's a big demand for recovery on the devices and people can protect themselves by syncing them and backing them up, um, but they are recoverable. And what, that's one of the things that quite, was quite amazing to me. We had talked about uh, some data recovery issues earlier and um, you, know, you would think that destroying this phone, I mean, we've seen, I mean, you've seen it all, I'm sure, phones like what we opened up the talk with, you know, a phone that was submerged in water, smashed to smithereens, some get burned. Uh, this flash memory could really hold on to its data pretty well. And so let, let's talk about the case that you had with, with that destroyed cell phone. So, you know, if I, I, was, I, I think of uh, Breaking Bad when, when they get those burner phones and they, you know, they, they make the phone call, they smash, they, they crack it in half, throw it in a dumpster and, and, and move on thinking that's going to be the end of the phone. But that really isn't. So, so describe for me this, this case that you had. And obviously you may not be able to talk about the details, but let's maybe talk hypothetically that um, I'm up to no good. I know this phone has been tracking my location. It has all this important data about me. So I'm going to smash it. I'm going to maybe burn it a little bit and then throw it in the lake. Um, the, the phone gets recovered. The motherboard, let's say, is smashed. But uh, what do you do when that phone comes to you in pieces? And what can you recover from it? Sure. Well, uh, your smartphone today is your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on your line of work. Right. Uh, it is very rich with information and full of information. So that particular case that we talked about is an excellent example. And this is not unique. I mean, we see a lot of this stuff come in. So when the phone is first smashed, uh, obviously the person's idea is uh, they're going to break the motherboard or break the memory inside the device so that it's not there any longer. I mean, we've had phones that went 26 stories off a New York City building to the concrete come into our lab and be recovered. That's how smashed a device can be and we can still get it. Now, if the NAND flash chip itself is totally shattered, it's not going to come back. But that's not typically what occurs because these are small chips on a board. So in that particular case that came in, yeah, the guy smashed the phone, cracked the board, completely smashed the phone. And the, and the motherboard, as you guessed, got physically damaged. Well, then when it got submerged, the immediate problem is corrosion. Uh, it's, you know, it's, of course, not distilled water. Uh, it's right. full of all kinds of contaminants. 
And not only is it beginning to corrode immediately underwater, as soon as it hits the air, the corrosion hits very quickly. And the board degrades fast. So when it came into the lab, I actually read all of the tech notes on this particular job. It's amazing what our clean room engineers had to do to get this one back. So we work in an ISO 5 certified clean room, which is a absolute pristine, more pristine than any surgical environment you can be in, where we reverse engineer these products and basically bring them back to life. And that board uh, came in when it was disassembled, it was broken, it was terribly corroded. All the chips had had uh, corrosion damage around the leads. The whole board had to be decomposed, basically torn apart, rebuilt with the flash itself and the controller, which is key to making the flash work. When you bring flash off a device, you typically need its controller as well because it's kind of like the brain for the flash. And a brand new phone was then built from those basic pieces. When the new phone was assembled, then we had to deal with all the problems in what we call the, the logical, the file system, the operating system to get the data. And once we got that phone to a point where we could use our engineering to get inside, we made a forensically defensible image that then is culled through by an investigator to pull out that evidence. And you know, as, as much as that person tried to destroy that device, it came back perfectly. Wow. So, so, you, so here's this phone. It's completely destroyed. You took out the components of it that were salvageable. And I guess it's probably really hard to destroy one of these flash chips, right? Because you could certainly you know, corrode the leads and crack the motherboard, but the chip is kind of protected inside of its casing, right? It is. I mean, if you, if you really knew what you were after, uh, you would you know, have to pull the machine apart or pull the drive apart to see the flash and then you know, intentionally shatter you know, the flash chip, which you could definitely do. But again, this is, you know, there's only a small couple of chips on the board, and you'd have to consciously go in and just destroy that. Now, if they did that, then it would not be recoverable. The, the, the chip would likely not be you know, repairable. Right. Uh, but that That's is not, not typically, yeah, it's not easy, and it is not typically the case. Our experience shows that the vast majority of these things that come in are, are highly recoverable. Wow, that's that's remarkable. So I guess if you're up to no good, you you need to really figure out a way to destroy the the phone. Now, I know in in the case of the older hard drives, you know when they when they would overwrite data, they, there was still a, maybe an essence of what was on there before. Uh, is there a, a a hard and fast way if you really wanted to secure a race a device? I know that with my iPhone, when I um, I, I go through iPhones like a lot of people go through pads of paper. Um, so I know when I go to the Apple store to turn it in, uh, usually it's not my fault, but uh, they, um, they have me secure erase the phone where it goes through a 30-minute process where I guess it just kind of zeroes out all the data on that, on that flash drive. Is, is that a way to prevent future reads, or is that even um, not the most foolproof way of protecting yourself? Uh, boy, this is a great question. And in fact, it is a very contentious point in the academic and, and manufacturing communities of uh, solid state drives today uh, and in government because they're trying to figure out what the standard is supposed to be for the erasure of data. So we call that sanitization of data. Uh, you probably are familiar with the, the Department of Defense spec for hard drives that everyone used to cite of the seven time overwrite. Maybe you're alluding to that of you know physically yeah, right. overwriting all the blocks. That, right. Remember Norton time. Utilities used to do that thing where it would overwrite the data seven or eight times and supposedly sure. give you a clean a clean surface there, right? Yeah. Now with magnetic media, you really did need to overwrite all of the blocks and you needed to do it multiple times because the heads didn't always write perfectly on the tracks and there was a little reverberation back and forth. But um, that idea of multiple overpass writing 
for hard disk does not apply with flash. So here it is with flash. Your, um, your experience is with the phone. So when that secure erase is done, secure erase is actually a command. It's an ATA command built into drives today that says go out and sanitize or reprogram, not write zeros, but mm -hmm. reprogram all of the flash on the device, which is kind of like flipping its bits, basically. Right. Um, but the, the, the industry is kind of going towards the standard of what's called crypto erase. And, uh, and we didn't talk about this yet, but encryption, uh, physical layer encryption in silicon is what is primarily used in flash and solid state drives today. Rather than encryption like most people think like a piece of software running on their, their PC or their Mac, well now it's built into almost all these devices. And with encryption being built into the device, the user may not even be aware of that, that's okay. Um, but if there's what we call a globally unique encryption key that's inside of that controller I talked about earlier, well, uh, all you have to do is throw away the key, discard the key. And that's called, useless. correct, it's called crypto erase. And, you know, as fast as flash stores data, well, you can surely lose data very quickly by invoking crypto erase. Uh, in fact, instantaneously almost, uh, your drive will appear to be fully sanitized, and, which means empty, which mm -hmm. means no data. Um, so yes, you can do it very quickly via software on most of the modern SSDs that you purchase today. Um, not all that software is invocable, nor do all the devices support that in the consumer space, but most of them do support the secure erase, which is that reprogramming of all of the blocks after a crypto erase happens so that you actually reset all those cells um, so that it is, is really sanitized across the whole device. But it is very quick with flash compared to what it is with hard disk. And again, it has to be a conscious effort on your part to go ahead and execute the command to do it. And if I did that, would and and let's say so, let's say I'm up to no good. I'm 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 gonna trash my burner phone. So now, granted, a lot of phones don't give you the option to do this. But let's say I'm on my iPhone and I'm gonna toss it. I do the secure erase, throw it in a garbage can. Uh, it gets recovered. It goes to your facility. Are you able to read that data, or is that really completely unreadable? Uh, excellent question. It depends really on how far it gets to the process. Um, so there was a great case that happened last year. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Matt Honan from Wired mm -hmm. Magazine. Oh, sure. Right. Yep. Do you remember the hack, the epic hack? Yeah, it was, it was, it was called. And it was kind of scary because they were able to get in there with, you know, this is a whole other discussion, but they, but they were able to get in there with just, with just some basic information and a phone call. Um, yeah, so his, the, now his hard drive was, was erased remotely, right, from, from iCloud. Is that the process there? That's correct. So three things got whacked, right? So the case was that his iPhone, his iPad, and his MacBook Air with a solid-state drive in it all were attacked. And remote secure wipe was executed on the phone, on the tablet, and on the uh, MacBook Air, all of which is basically the same process. They're all using Flash. And it was effective and totally cooked the uh, phone and the tablet. But on the, hard, uh, the solid-state drive on the MacBook Air, the secure erase process, just like when you're in there watching your iPhone get wiped, that was interrupted by Matt Honan himself, not mm -hmm. intentionally, oh. but he knew something was up. He didn't mm -hmm. know what was up at his workstation, but he cycled power. Oh, so he turned it off. Yeah, and he actually aborted the process, didn't know it was happening, right? But by pure luck and happenstance, he interrupted that process part of the way through. 
which was incredible because once it got into our laboratory, we looked at all the devices and the first two were completely nuked. There was nothing to get off the iPhone and uh, off of the iPad. And on the solid state drive, it was partially nuked and it, it was absolutely in the process of secure erase. And we saw where it stopped and we were able to recover all data beyond that point, uh, including the most critical photos he wanted off of it and the very last photo he took the night before the hack occurred. So even though Secure Erase was run, the user didn't know, but it stopped, and thank goodness it did, because we were able to get the data off it. Had it completed the execution on the MacBook Air, we would have got nothing. Wow. So so this is uh, some, some good... Another great example of having not only probably a cloud backup, but something local that a hacker can't get to because if, if that secure erase function happens, you're, you're in trouble. And I, I would imagine that law enforcement may not be all that crazy about these secure erase functions on flash media, right? I mean, they, you know, I guess for so long it's been easier to extract data from magnetic media. Now we're moving into these chip-based things, and you know, I'm sure the bad guys know they can hit a button and, and wipe out their, their evidence. Is that... Uh, a, a topic of discussion in, in the community right now? It sure is. Um, it's a huge topic of discussion. Um, it's such a topic of discussion. Uh, we were having this talk with a partner yesterday in the, in the uh, technology space about the ability to develop or not be able to develop a universal tool that could kind of seize or prevent that process from occurring kind of across all vendors or all devices but it's a little bit of a holy grail uh, and unlikely to be attainable tool. Uh, but there's definitely a question and demand for it, you know, in the, in the law enforcement community about this. Um, and you're right that um, those people who know that they can destroy their data or that have encryption running, 128 or 256 bit encryption, know that if they are able to power down their device, that it will lock itself and get encrypted and likely not be hackable even by the best government you know, sources uh, today with 256-bit encryption really is not breakable by brute force. So I have, and, and I can't uh, uh, authenticate this right now, but a, a person in law enforcement who I know quite well has told me that when they are going on site now uh, to do an intervention or an acquisition of a, a, a device or, or to, to visit with a potential suspect, the very first thing they're looking to do is to secure power to the devices that are running so that they are not shut down, powered off, or closed. Because they know that if somebody shuts down their tablet or flips their laptop closed, that, that if that thing locks up, law enforcement can't get it. If it's still on and operational, the data is right there and they can extract it. Wow. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's fascinating because, yeah, so the data is there. It's fine, but you can't. You don't have the encryption key. You, you can't read it. Um, and before we close out, I, I did want to talk, you know, locally. There's, uh, you know, the, the tragedy in, in Newtown has taken a, a direction where the, the, uh, the, the shooter had some hard drives that were shattered or smashed. And we don't know, you know, law enforcement hasn't really been talking about the condition of the materials they found. But as you mentioned at the onset of the interview, that this is right now in the hands of federal authorities. Um, of course, we're speculating here, but let's assume that, uh, he took a hammer to his hard drive, and and the the platters. Let's assume it's also a, a spinning hard disk, which most uh, you know most computers have still. Um, 
those platters are, are damaged, the magnetic medium in which the data is stored. Uh, what, what do you go through when you get a hard drive in that kind of condition? Is there a way to extract data? It seems like they might be getting some things out of it. Uh, and, and how would you approach that as a, as a forensic uh, extractor of this kind of data? Sure. Great question. So um, I agree with you that uh, the, uh, the authorities have never been totally clear about the number of devices uh, and what types. It, I would assume that there was a phone in there, too. I think I saw some uh, a reference to that. Uh, and possibly hard disks, like maybe there was a few disks. But with magnetic media, yeah, we've seen them smashed. In fact, we've seen all kinds of things. Uh, you know, ball-peen hammers uh, taken to drives, uh, bullets through drives. Absolutely. We've had them shot and come into the laboratory. Uh, and we've had platters broken, shattered, uh, burnt, uh, tweaked, bent. All kinds of things can happen. And you can have up to five platters inside of a hard drive. Right. And if you imagine that every platter's got two surfaces, there's actually 10 readable and writable surfaces inside of a, you know, a big complex hard drive. So if a drive comes in and the platters have been compromised in some way, um, there may or may not be a chance for recoverability, just depending on the extent of the damage. So we have had platters where the media surface, which is kind of that metallic reflective surface, if you've ever seen a platter, it's ground to dust, and there's nothing but the glass substrate, and you can see through the platters. That absolutely happens in catastrophic failures. That's not recoverable because there's nothing to recover. Right. It's all um, physically gone. It's gone. It's dust, literally dust, uh, and quite toxic and noxious as well, but <laughs> that happens. Now, when we see them damaged, um, whether through heat or through physical impact, remember, there's multiple platters and multiple surfaces. And so we have the ability that if a particular surface is unreadable, that we might be able to read the other side of it or the other surfaces inside of a drive. In fact, we can turn heads on and off on particular drives so that we only read a particular surface and ignore other surfaces that may be damaged, for example. So there's actually a good opportunity to recover data back from a very physically damaged hard drive. It, it might just be bits really and pieces, right? It may not be you know, the whole thing, but you might be able to extract a piece of this file, a piece of that file, right? I mean, there's... Sure. And to the question of like data recovery versus forensics, here's the big mm -hmm. difference. In data recovery, you want the video to play without any artifacts and, and garbage in it. In forensics, you need pieces of files and that's it to tell a story to prove or disprove the claim. And so a partial recovery from a, you know, damaged drive for forensic purposes can easily include the key piece of evidence that you need. Right. And, and then you could probably go back to the phone or to some other device and then piece together, you know, where they were. And then and all of those things combined could give you the picture that you're, you're looking to paint, I would guess, right? Well, again, there's a very rich history in our digital devices. Um, again, the phone, the most so. And it, that, to me, is the most interesting part of that particular case is what kind of phone was he using? You know, I, I know that I think there was reference that he wasn't in social media and didn't seem to be, you know, I'm sure he was all over the web and all over the place. And again, he probably consciously did something to destroy the phone before he destroyed it. But each different piece tells part of that story. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, uh, they're trying to assemble a good story out of it. And that's very commonplace in the forensic and kind of e-discovery space today uh, um, that we deal with. It just, in this particular case, is, is, is so relevant because it was such a significant issue. Right, and it's so little that they, that they know. So well, I guess in wrapping up, I guess we can say that the, these little flash disks are uh, not so volatile, right? They, they will hold their data fairly well, provided you don't 
you know, over overkill it <laughs> with too much data. Um, they are very physically uh, reliable in that you can destroy them physically and still manage to get some uh, some data out of them. And any last tips that you would give to a consumer of, of flash media that they should be considerate of? I mean, backing up seems to be the most obvious one. Um, is there anything else that they should know about the flash card in their camera? Maybe replace it every year or two? Well, there is one very relevant point that we, we didn't tackle here, um, and I'm glad you asked, is that it's about the retention of data on these devices. Right. You know, that's and, and this is the other kind of contentious point uh, in the industry right now, along with that endurance that we were talking about earlier. Now, endurance, remember, is defined as uh, how many times you can write to the device, how operational it will be. Uh, retention is the idea of how long the data will persist once the device is powered off. Okay, so that's what people care about when they're putting it on the shelf, for example, or putting a bunch of photos or their tax records or whatever else on a USB stick and putting it in their safety deposit box. Right. Uh, flash media is not archival. That is very important to know. All right. I think a lot of people have the misconception that their camera card or their USB stick or whatever it is is going to last a very long time sitting on a shelf. Uh, it is not and it is not intended to. So the retention over time is actually much better on a hard disk, a magnetic disk with platters in it, than it is on any type of flash media. Back to what we talked about at the very beginning about those electrons in those cells being trapped. Well, they start to bleed out over time. So in general terms, and I'm saying in general because manufacturers will state differently, you don't expect these things to last more than 10 years sitting on a shelf. That 13-year-old card you had there, it, if it still works, that's, that's great. Um, it's more likely to be readable than writable because the writes are the first things that really start to fail while it's still readable. But again, this stuff is not archival, so don't expect it to last a really long time and don't preserve it as such. Um, print your pictures. You know, put multiple copies on different hard disks and archive those little USB external drives something that's likely to be readable in the future because your flash is not supposed to last a really long time. So manage it as best you can in your day-to-day -day use. Don't be surprised when it fails uh, for whatever reason. Be prepared, be protected, be backed up, and know that you're going to have to buy more of this stuff because, like you alluded to earlier, floppy disks used to be the way we move this data back and forth. Now we do it on different little types of flash devices. Right. Um, that's the best advice I can give you there. Uh, use the technology. It's amazing. It's fast. It's efficient. It's reliable. But it doesn't last forever. And back up everything that's important all the time. Well, that is sage advice. Back it up. So I know there's some of you out there, and I know, I know there are, who have uh, been running that same digital camera card in that camera for three or four years, one of my siblings in particular. So get that stuff off of that card. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I think we might want to do some of these again. We'll see. Uh, we have a bunch of people who've been tuning in, and, and uh, I, I'm sure as uh, things develop out in the world where data is recovered and data recovery is becoming so much uh, a part of, of forensics and, uh, and even uh, commercial uh, interests in, in lawsuits and that kind of stuff. So we'd love to, to explore some of these topics uh, in the future. But thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Lon. I look forward to it. Great, Chris, thanks, uh, thanks again, and we will be back again with another Tech Junkie interview at some point in the near future. Thanks for watching.